0: You know, if we think things are bad now, imagine what things were like in 1942, when my grandmother was standing in front of a barbed wire fence with the Gestapo coming.
1: Thomas Coombs grew up hearing his grandmother's story. He always thought he'd end up working in human rights, and he was right. He's now part of a worldwide communications team at Amnesty International, who are working to change the way we engage with injustice.
0: I mean, this was the darkest time imaginable. And yet there was still hope. That's what we need to give people. We need to give people hope that things can get better.
1: We've grown pretty used to fundraising adverts on TV. Some of them play on stereotypes of what life's like for people in developing countries. But this week, I'm talking to Thomas about how to change the conversation and communicate hope over fear. This is Small Changes, a podcast about how sometimes the seemingly smallest change can have the biggest impact. I'm Lucy Lamble. We're talking today because there's this very interesting conversation going on inside Amnesty and other organisations about how we represent the work we do, how the world is represented, in fact. And there there are a few interesting tensions in that. What's, What's Amnesty doing right now?
0: So Amnesty International's approach for a very long time has been to expose abuses and then put pressure on the perpetrators to fix them. So naming and shaming. And the problem that we have found in recent years is that mobilizing shame is quite difficult at a time when politicians are shameless. So the refugee crisis is a very good example where as Syrians were coming to Europe and governments were refusing to accept them, our model of trying to make the voice of those people heard and show Europeans how they were suffering and what they were fleeing wasn't working. So no matter how much we would show these terrible stories, we were not able to change government policy. And so we felt we sort of needed to to go back to the drawing board a little bit and, and see what was happening. And we looked at some of the science coming from the United States, essentially neuroscience and cognitive linguistics being applied to communications. And what we saw was that we weren't having the right effect on people when we were communicating to them. We would see, for example, politicians showing the same image as we were, which was crowds of people. And so we could see that when we showed people a crowd, we were scaring them and we weren't making connections. So we were trying to see how can we still generate news, but also create a connection between ordinary people and the people who actually were ordinary people, but just forced to flee their homes. And so we started looking at ways to do things differently. The most successful example um, was in 2015, a Polish agency called DDB Tribal worked with Amnesty Poland and produced this amazing video called Look Beyond Borders. five. Six, five. Oh. Six, five. <laughs> it's essentially based on a psychological theory that if you stare in someone's eyes for four minutes without talking, you'll build a close emotional bond. So these guys had the great idea to put refugees who have just arrived in Europe opposite people from several European countries and have them run this experiment and see what would happen. And the results were really astonishing. So you would have a Polish woman looking into the eyes of a a woman in a headscarf, for example, and just building this really strong connection. You have a woman looking in the eyes of a man who's just fled Syria, and she asks him...
1: And are you alone here, or
0: And you know, the woman breaks down in tears, but you also had happy uh, experiences. You had you know, two children, one from Syria, one from Poland, and they sort of run around and play together. Uh, a young woman and a man who decide to go to the cinema afterwards. Basically, the message was so clear to everyone who saw it that, at the end know, they were all human. And what's different, what we've really learned from it, is we just showed people making a human connection, and that really cut through all the noise. Hi. <laughs> One of the headlines about about the video summed it all up. It said, this video will make you think differently about the refugee crisis. Personally, I've always been a communicator very much sort of based on political arguments. So my instinct was always to say, well, let me tell you how refugees will help the economy. And let me tell you why it's important that we take in refugees to create stability. What I've learned since then by looking at, at this new science of positive communication is that I was engaging in exactly the debate the other side wanted me to have the more i would talk about the economy and security even trying to make a different case i still kept that in people's mind so what we realized we need to do is just change the narrative so for example another thing we did was we saw these surveys that said people are don't want to let refugees in because they are afraid they're terrorists but all the questions were framed in a very negative way so we decided well let's talk about human rights so we asked people do you think people fleeing war and persecution have a right to claim asylum? And we also asked them, would you let someone fleeing war and persecution take shelter in your country, in your community or in your home? And again, we had incredibly high levels. When you ask people those basic human questions, they say the right thing. It's just people are conflicted, they're divided They're between all these different arguments. And so we realised we really just needed to make the conversation different. We need to make it about humanity.
1: Another really memorable video is the, is the one on death penalty. Can you talk us through that?
0: So Amnesty Belgium wanted to change the way people think about the death penalty. So they made a video called The Death Penalty Test. Essentially, ordinary people sit in front of a simulation and they're shown people who are, they've been told have committed a crime and they're asked whether or not to carry out the death sentence, whether these people should be executed.
1: That's a really shocking thing to be asked. How much were the participants prepared for that?
0: At first, the participants seemed quite calm about it, and they found it very easy to make the decision. This person is a rapist, this person is a terrorist. I a terrorist. He's <laughs> a terrorist. do a terrorist. But then we made the uh, scenarios a bit more complicated. Does driver killed nine children while driving under influence? at first, the participants found it quite straightforward, but the more and more they look at it the, that these were real people and that they were having that power of life and death, the more likely they are to change their mind about the death penalty. If an ordinary person is conflicted that On the one hand, they don't think the state should kill, but on the other hand, they think people should be punished for their crimes. If they see someone in the same dilemma as them, changing their minds and moving towards one side, that's going to be a lot more powerful than an amnesty expert telling them what's morally right or wrong.
1: There is nonetheless that basic truth that organisations need to raise funds. And uh, fundraising appeals have often run some quite tough campaign showing, you know, the worst of human misery for very good reasons. People have been in ex- situations of extreme vulnerability, whether they're starving or facing conflict. How's it been to, to have that kind of conversation inside Amnesty about which is the right way to go?
0: Yes, the challenge with with talking about hope and positivity and solutions is that I think anyone who works for a cause feels a burning need to tell the story of suffering and injustice. I think that's why we're all there. In many ways, news organizations can show the world what's wrong. We have to bring something a little different. We have to show that actually there is hope. And so the main thing I've been trying to tell my colleagues actually is to consider, if you look at some of the the great leaders of the past, Peter Benenson who created Amnesty, Martin Luther King, or most recently Barack Obama, all their rhetoric was actually based on, on hope. In terms of fundraising and being based on on the problem, some of our audience research shows that people feeling that that problems are hopeless and that we can't fix them is actually a barrier to taking action and to supporting us. What we would like to start doing is show ordinary people changing their mind. What we want to avoid is, first of all, making people feel hopeless to show a problem without showing how we can fix it. Uh, But also what we've learned is we need to avoid people feeling afraid. So a great example is a series of concerts we did called Give a Home, which we we worked with an organization called Sofar, who hold concerts in living rooms. And I think that really sums up the new approach, because in what place can you feel more comfortable and secure than in a living room? then they're more open and receptive to messages.
1: We are talking about some really egregious human rights as well, though. So how do you avoid the pitch just being too rosy, considering the actual state of the world?
0: Every time I I raise this with a colleague, of course, that's their instinct. And the first thing I try and tell them is, what we're trying to do is help these people. And what we need to do is to win the argument. And that these findings are based on scientific findings and testing about what changes people's minds. But there's also another side to it. It's also about the people who are trying to help. So for so long, the development in human rights sector has been about telling people stories for them. I think what we're trying to do now, what social media allows us to do, is increasingly have those people tell the stories for themselves. And often it's difficult because perhaps it's dangerous for them. But whenever we can now, we would have a refugee, for example, take over the Amnesty Instagram account and tell their story themselves. And so while we will always be trying to fight those abuses, what we've learned is if we show our audience, if we show the world a person who's not a victim, not someone just in need, but a person who is facing difficult times, but perhaps is also standing up to them and needs someone's support and solidarity, we feel we can have more of an impact. It, it really comes down to the difference between compassion and pity, sympathy and empathy. So, you know, pity and sympathy can be quite a negative emotion, actually, and also be quite linked to sort of fear of it happening to yourself, whereas empathy is something much more powerful.
1: Your own family's faced big human rights challenges. Tell us a bit about your family history.
0: So when I went to one of the concerts that Amnesty International held, these give a home concerts in, in a living room in Crouch End, very close to where I live, I felt that I needed to tell a story that would make people see how, how bad the situation for refugees was. So I, t- I told them the story of, of a woman called Sarah who fled her home when the secret police came for her. And she hired a trafficker who took her to the border to escape. But when she came to the border, she found a fence, a barbed wire fence. And her husband said, this is over. We have to go back and face what, what's waiting for us. Uh, but Sarah was pregnant, so she couldn't accept that. So she climbed over the fence and it was barbed wire. She was bleeding and the, the police on the other side of the border had been deporting people who, who had come, but they made an exception for pregnant people. And so on her form, uh, when they wrote, why are you claiming asylum? She wrote because I'm Jewish. So that was 1942. And obviously everyone in the room was really shocked by that. The next line, of course, shocked him even more that Sarah was my grandmother and I wouldn't be here if she hadn't survived. What really struck me was when I told that story, how warmly people responded to it. Um, And I really feel that the environment made a difference. But of course, that story has also colored how I see the world and how I communicate, because my grandmother was the only person from her family who survived the Holocaust. One of her brothers, for example, looks just like me. He has a photo. And and when I did my bar mitzvah when I was 13, my grandmother was very sad because I looked just like him and she thought I was him. So. Obviously, that's why I've always wanted to work for a human rights organization. But it's also been why I see the world very negatively. And I've communicated quite negatively and aggressively as well uh, with that sort of never again and, you know, attacking perpetrators. And so when I started applying this sort of hope based communications and my colleagues would say, how can we talk about hope at such a dark time? Just look at Egypt, where after the Arab Spring, things have gotten much worse. And I realized something about my own life, that I'd seen my grandmother's story as a story of despair, of hopelessness. How could such a bad thing happen? But then I thought, you know, if we think things are bad now, imagine what things were like in 1942, when my grandmother was standing in front of a barbed wire fence with the Gestapo coming. I mean, this was the darkest time imaginable, and yet there was still hope. And so it really, that's when it really occurred to me that You know, as an organisation, that's what we need to give people. We need to give people hope that things can get better.
1: What's in the pipeline right now?
0: What we want to do at Amnesty International next is apply the new learnings about understanding people's emotions to the very concept of human rights itself. We're seeing the way politicians talk about human rights changing, I think, for a really long time. The memory of, for example, the Holocaust was was very strong and nobody would have questioned human rights, but it's becoming increasingly popular to bash it. And I think for a new generation of people who grew up not not, not having that, that horrible history of World War II in their minds, the words human rights don't ring the same way as they did. So Amnesty International, we, we're hoping to recruit the best minds in the ad world, not just in the West, but around the world in different countries to find new ways of selling human rights to people in different countries and what we want to do is take really specific audience groups for example uh, young people who belong to a minority in Malaysia and work with an agency who usually sells airplanes and you know running shoes and things like that and see is there a new way we can talk about human rights that makes it relevant to those people I think the most important thing though that we're going to do differently is just get better at listening to people I think one of the things we are seeing with the rise of demonizing politicians who want to scapegoat other people is that they've gotten very good at understanding people's fear. They use our Facebook data and all our other online information to almost understand us better than ourselves. And they're using that to really target precise advertisements and images that they know will get that individual person in the right zone to you know bring them to their side but using fear and i think a really big challenge for anyone who wants to work for good causes how do we respond to that
1: are we seeing a new era of psychological warfare here
0: i think when responding to fear mongering and scapegoating if we fight fire with fire we'll just burn everything down i think we need to get better now talking about what it is we stand for and what what does the world that we want to see look like
1: If you liked this episode, then please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Small Changes is a global development podcast. You can read our work at theguardian.com forward slash global hyphen development and join the discussion on Twitter. We're at Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us there or it's podcasts at theguardian.com. We'll be back next week. I'm Lucy Lamble. The producer is Gabriella Jones. This was Small Changes. Thanks for listening.